A reading from Romans chapter 6. Paul writes, Do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin, because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what advantage did you get from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Throughout the summer here at Glory Day, we're going to be working our way, we started a few weeks ago, working our way through uh, the book of Romans, which to be clear, and you, you, you may have noticed that again now if you didn't already know, is not an easy read. But if, spiritually speaking, you're up for some deep diving, uh, and also perhaps interested in, in, in learning a few um, $10 words along the way. And if uh, you can live with, and maybe even, maybe even if you can enjoy um, great questions that are so great that you can't even, you just have to wrestle with them. You can't even succinctly, definitively answer them. If that's you, then Romans is a great read. Uh, Luther suggested that every Christian should read it regularly. In fact, Luther suggested that every Christian should memorize the book of Romans. Now this was before social media platforms did whatever they did to our brain matter, but he liked it. Romans uh, was written by Paul, um, whom you may or may not know was originally a devoutly religious persecutor of Christians and was even party to the martyrdom, the killing of Stephen, the first Christian to be killed just for being a Christian. And some of us then we think to ourselves, you know, how can someone call themselves devoutly religious and then be so hateful? But then we immediately stop and we think and we look around and we say, oh yeah, right, sorry, sorry I asked. Paul seething with religiously fervent hate then had 
some kind, I mean, it kind of describes it, but you still have to imagine it had some kind of a, a dramatic encounter with the risen and ascended and literally glowing with blinding light Jesus, who then, rather than giving him the divine comeuppance he surely deserved, told him he wanted him to change teams and he wanted him to preach Christ instead of persecuting those who followed Christ. In that and it was a literally blinding moment. Paul began his journey, began his journey, this took a little while, uh, towards seeing that all his life he'd wanted to be close to God, had sought to accomplish that by obeying all the religious rules, only now to realize that his rule-driven religion had left him not close to God but distant from God and even sinfully and violently opposed to what God was up to in the world. And what now healed that breach was not anything he'd done, but rather Jesus coming to him where he was with love and forgiveness and a call to a new life in spite of what he'd done. In Romans 1 and 3, Paul expansively, because this is how Romans is, he kind of, everything's kind of expansive, he makes the case that that is not just true about him, it's true about all people. And he summarizes it at the end of those, that section with these words, we hold that a person is justified, $10 word, but we heard that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. We hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Pastor Rogers, St. Paul for dummies. Think of the word justified in a document and it means that a margin is lined up straight according to a certain standard. What Paul says is that according to the highest standard there is, that being the holy, holy, holy righteousness of God. We are fully justified. We are lined up perfectly straight in our relationship with God, not when we do enough to earn or work our way into it, but rather when we come to realize and place our trust in all that Jesus has done to come and love our way into it. I think of justification being lined up right in our relationship with God by the power of God and our faith rather than the power of God's laws and our performance. I think of it by thinking about a child coming to a parent who of course along the way has given that child some rules and such to guide them but who now comes to her parent and says, I've obeyed all your rules. Will you love me now? Am I good enough now? Can I be your child now? Let's be clear, in this sin-broken world, tragically, there are some children actually who do kind of grow up thinking that. But by God, that is not how it's meant to be. I mean, of course, parents do their best to give children some guidelines and rules along the way, but that's not so that they can obey them, and then they, they, we love them. We give them such because we love them because they're our child. Which doesn't mean that a child, be it our child by birth or adoption, or God's child by baptism or adoption, can't turn their back on that relationship and want nothing to do with that relationship and even flee far from that relationship. That just won't change the fact that they are who they are and the thing they are above all is loved. As humans, of course, we all of us in one way or another, as parents or children, live into the truth and that relationship imperfectly loving, every single one of us. 
God on God's side, on the other hand, lives into that truth and that relationship perfectly loving. And we, Paul says, can neither earn that love by doing enough good, nor for that matter delete that love by doing enough sinning. But we can, and God is such a giver, Paul says elsewhere, that God gives us the Holy Spirit to help us do this. We can come to believe that by God and in Christ at our best and our worst, we are loved. And when we do, says Paul, we are justified. We are lined up straight in our relationship with God that is the relationship God created us for. That truth, um, justified by faith, lined up in our relationship with God, not by our efforts, but by God's love and Christ's efforts. Uh, 500 years ago, 1500 years after Paul rebirthed Martin Luther, who then rebirthed a church that once again knew how to preach good news rather than performance-based news. Luther and Paul both then, again and again, faced the same brand of pushback, which came most times from good religious people who, when people like Paul and Luther started, um, in these people's opinions, going off the deep end about this faith thing, faith being all that and, and good works being pretty much worthless when it comes to being in a right relationship with God, people then, they, they said, Paul, Luther, if you tell people they don't have to be good in order to be saved and go to heaven, they won't be good. If you tell people God loves them even though they sin, they'll keep sinning. If you tell people they'd be forgiven no matter what they do, they'll do whatever they please. Like the wit who once said, God loves forgiving sin and I love sinning. What a wonderful arrangement. Those of us who were here last week heard Paul begin his response to that pushback at the beginning of Romans 6. The whole chapter deals with it, but beginning last time he said, he said this, What then are we to say? Should we continue to sin in order that grace may abind, abound? By no means. How can you who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Yes, says Paul, we are saved by faith, not by good works. And so therefore, of course, when it comes to getting to heaven someday, and for that matter, being in a healed and whole relationship right here and now these days, it doesn't matter what you've done or do still. But then he goes on to say, but come on, people. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter what you do. How does that work? It doesn't matter what you do, but it does, according to Paul. Well, you may have heard the one primary lens he uses to talk about that is the, is the, is the, is the bifocal lens of death and life. Because you see, in this world continuing to slog its way through the unending pandemic of sin, this world where witty people do say and think things like, God loves forgiving sin and I love sitting, what a wonderful, uh, a wonderful arrangement. The clear and prevailing subtext to that kind of pushback and that kind of wittiness is the thought that since God loves me even though I sin, I am free to do what? Live it up by sinning away. 
Paul, in responding to that with the language of sin, of life and death, is actually echoing one of the first truths in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, when God says to the man and the woman in that garden where life then is the life it is meant to be, eat whatever you want, but don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat it, if you disobey, you will die. Paul's version of that here is the proclamation that sinning every sin you can think of, disobeying God in every way you can imagine, isn't living it up. It's just more dying for you and for others and for God's creation. As evidence in support of Paul, I give almost every headline there is in your newspapers, your news channels, and your news feeds. So much not love. So much not the will of God. And therefore, so much not life, but death. But to a Savior who dies at the hands of it all, to rise and live again, and who calls and empowers us to die and then to be raised up with him. Not just to heavenly life and forever life one day, but also to a new life, resurrected life, that leads us not to really live it up, but rather at last to really live. For in Paul's words, we've been buried with Christ by baptism into death, and so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life that is actually life. We're saved by faith, not by what we do, but that said, there are, of course, things that faith does. Frederick Buechner put it this way, faith is the word that describes the direction your feet start moving when you find that you are loved. Paul ends Romans 6 and this deep dive into the truth that we are saved by faith, not by anything we do, but nevertheless it still totally matters what we do, with these words. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. Sanctification, another one of Paul's $10 words, comes from the root word that means holy. As in the liturgy, when we sing a piece every week that's called the Sanctus, which begins with the words in one musical setting or another, including in our jazz setting today, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord. The Sanctus, singing in praise of the holiness of God. The grammatically related word, sanctification, is a word that refers to holiness that is holiness that becomes us. When we forgiven sinners, and let's be honest, we're still sinners. Sin is not something any of us ever get entirely over in this life. Sin is rather something one day at a time. God continues to see us through and forgive us through every time we need it throughout our lives. But that says, says Paul, and this is this thing called sanctification. There is that which refers to the ways in which we, again, not by ourselves, but sometimes even in spite of ourselves, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are raised from the dead to new life and deeds and words and things that we do that are holy because they are of God. And what does that look like? 
Well, the easiest answer now is to sell the whole farm by taking this opportunity to go back to a bunch of rules. Okay, you're a Christian now, saved by faith, of course, I mean as far as that goes. But now it's time to get serious. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. By all means, never, ever, ever do one of the really big thises and thats, or a lot of us will be pretty sure you're not actually a Christian at all, and then you'll be right back where you started. This is what you call bad religion and pathetically anemic Christianity. Telling us we may not be brought into a saving and life-giving relationship with God by keeping any rules, but we better now darn sure prove it by keeping rules. And just like that, we've turned our backs to the amazing grace of God, to turn back now to the flimsy efforts of us. We've turned from Jesus and all he's done to find love's way to us, now to turn back to all that we're supposed to do to prove our worthiness of his love. And that's back where we started. And that is a, an anemically lousy Christianity. Sanctification is not the holy work of us. Sanctification is a word used to refer to the results of the lifelong work of the Holy Spirit through us, sometimes in spite of us, more than a few times side by side with the complete cluelessness of us, growing, most often not religiously and maybe not even consciously, into the life-giving and life-living desires of God for us. And what does that look like? Not more rules. We have enough rules. And rules can only do what they can do. And what they can do is guard life. Rules cannot give life. But it's jazz weekend. I wanted to wear my fedora, but my wife said no. I want to think about sanctification, living into the holiness God has given us as a gift by thinking like this. A, a couple years ago uh, on Jazz Sunday, just like today, the hymn of the day was Amazing Grace, and, and, and Jerry Zinn was leading our jazz combo that time, and I asked him if maybe I could solo on the first verse of Amazing Grace and improvise some. Um, you know, not sticking exactly to the written notes, but playing with them, son, singing some other notes, too. There's a lot of that in jazz. You've heard a lot of that already. Uh, so we gave it a try. We were running through things before worship. I want to tell you, I, I, uh, I personally was very impressed by, um, by, by me. <laughs> but then I noticed the piano player looking just a tiny bit quizzically at Jerry. And Jerry... Jerry is a nice man, and, uh, and so it was really, really subtle, but I thought I noticed that Jerry almost kind of just about winced. Afterwards, I said, so? <laughs> he said, that, 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 was, that was good. Uh, maybe, maybe stay a little closer to the chords. And we tried it again. Let's be clear, this didn't emerge into a new career opportunity or anything. I mean, be it jazz or golf, for that matter, let's be serious. Roger, keep your day job. So the second time through wasn't all of a sudden just like awesome. Uh, but it was better. And it was actually more fun. 
as instead of living it up by singing whatever the heck I felt like, uh, what happened, and expecting the music, the chords, to be shaped into submission by my singing, whatever the heck I felt like, what happened instead, not awesomely, but at least kind of sort of, and I could feel the difference, was the chords now shaping into me and with me and through me this new song. On this uh, Jazz Sunday, I want to think of the Christian life, sanctification, if you want to use Paul's $10 word, by thinking of our lives, the entirety of our lives as a song that we sing with our words and our deeds and all that we do all the time being the notes of our song. And there aren't a lot of hard and fast rigid rules about what specific notes we all have to sing in our song, and so we also don't all sing the same song. But we all, no matter what we sing, don't impose our will upon the word or upon the world, but rather stay close to the chord. The most beautiful chord there is, that being the chord of God's love for us and the world. Sometimes I wince, and I'm not Jerry. Uh, I wince <laughs> visibly uh, when I see and hear the things some churches and church people say because I think when I hear them saying the things they're saying they've gotten too far from the cord because what they're saying is in no way harmonic with the cord of God's love. That in mind, I'd like to end this message by going back to that response we responded several times when we read the psalm together, that response being Psalm 89, verse 1, Your love, O Lord, forever will I sing. But this time we're going to sing. Uh, it's printed in your bulletins. We're going to sing it several times. First, we'll sing the notes that are written. Uh, and by the way, we're going to sing and then take two measures off, sing, I'll, you know what, do what you want. But that's what I'm going to do. Um, and if you really want to feel the freedom of a jazz musician, you can even sing a few notes that kind of kind of rhyme a little bit, that are kind of close to the chords. And, and as you do, just remember, whether you're singing, whether you're living your life, um, stay in touch with the chords. And remember that every day the chords more beautiful than any chords, the chords ever to stay close to and sing along with are the chords of God's love for you and God's love for God's world. Hmm. Let's sing. I think I'm going to get a pitch here. Your love, O Lord, forever will I sing. Your love, O Let's pick it up this time.